Hello, and welcome to The Face of Bible John, a true crime podcast investigating a series of unsolved murders in the city of Glasgow, Scotland, from 1968 to 1969. I'm your host, Louise McGregor. Please note that this podcast will contain descriptions of physical and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. It's a striking image. Pale skin beneath distinctive red hair. The eyes are cold and hard and the expression is disdainful with a hint of a sneer on the thin lips. This hand-painted photo fit of a young Scottish man from the late 1960s is a likeness that has entered the annals of Scottish crime, one that any true crime buff has seen time and time again. And it's very easy to imagine that this is the face of a brutal murderer. Because that's what it is. This is Bible John, one of Scotland's most notorious serial killers. Or is it? This killer picked up all his victims at a popular Glasgow night spot in 1968 and 1969. The murderer made no attempt to conceal or disguise himself and was seen by a number of witnesses with his victims. One witness actually shared a taxi with the killer and one of his victims. Under the direction of the police, these witnesses worked with a talented artist to produce a striking portrait of the man who would become known as Bible John. This image was splashed across newspapers, posters and television screens in an unsuccessful attempt to catch the killer. Its publication generated something close to hysteria in Glasgow and beyond. It became so well known that, for their own safety, people who resembled the man in the picture were forced to carry police letters confirming that they were not the killer. But despite massive public interest and an exhaustive police investigation that lasted three years and involved hundreds of officers, Bible John was never identified. How could the killer avoid arrest with his likeness on the front of every major Scottish newspaper and on police posters throughout the city of Glasgow? Surely it couldn't be hard to catch a murderer when police knew exactly what he looked like? Is it possible that the portrait itself was a false clue that became the main barrier to finding Bible John? While some witnesses agreed that the painting did look like the murderer, others were equally certain that it didn't resemble him at all. Police investigators chose to believe those who said that the painting looked like the killer and they looked exclusively for suspects with thin, pale faces and red hair. But what if they were wrong? Could police insistence that this was the real face of Bible John actually have derailed the investigation and perhaps even allowed a multiple murderer to remain free? This is the story of one of the most famous faces in Scottish crime history. It's also the story of whether or not this is really the face of a murderer. The first inkling that a serial killer was hunting for victims on the streets of Glasgow came on a bitterly cold February Friday morning in 1968. Glasgow, as one of Scotland's five cities, reflected enormous cultural and political upheaval that was echoed across the rest of the country over the course of the 1960s. In 1968, it was a city caught between its past and its future. Shipbuilding on the River Clyde had begun to decline over the course of the decade, marking a major hit in the city's most prominent industry, and unemployment had plagued Glasgow along with the rest of Scotland at alarming rates. At the same time, support for Scottish independence began to rise, with the Scottish Nationalist Party making its first major steps over the course of the 1960s. The government tried to address appalling living conditions in the city with the introduction of the iconic Glaswegian high-rises and housing projects, leaving many of those still housed in the red brick tenements that had become near synonymous with the city facing deteriorating living conditions. 
A failed renovation project in the centre of the city would leave a half-finished road dangling for decades before its completion, nicknamed the Road to Nowhere by locals. At the start of 1968, just weeks before Bible John's first attack, a storm ripped through the central belt of Scotland, killing dozens of people and rendering damage to Glasgow that was compared to the Blitz of the Second World War. Celtic, one of the two major local Glasgow football teams, would shortly claim the Scottish Cup from Rangers, their bitter cross-city rivals, in a 4-0 drubbing at Hampden Park in their hometown. But, when Morris Goodman left his house on Carmichael Place in the Queen's Park area of Glasgow at around 7 o'clock that morning, Dunfermline Athletic Football Club still held that title, and the city had no idea with what it was about to contend. Queen's Park was and remains one of the more affluent areas of the city, named for a large park at its heart which itself drew its lofty title for Mary, Queen of Scots herself. On that particular February morning, it was getting light by the time that Morris emerged, though the sun wouldn't rise for another half hour. A few stars were still visible in the clear sky, and Morris pushed his hands deep into the pockets of his heavy work jacket to protect against the cold as his boots crunched on a thick layer of frost. His breath plumed in front of him like shipbuilder's steam as he walked from his home towards the narrow, cobbled, high-walled lane where he kept his car overnight in a lock-up garage. Good thing he did, otherwise he'd have had to spend another five minutes fumbling in the cold, scraping the ice off a frozen windscreen. At 67, Morris no doubt felt the winter chill more than he had as a young man. By rights, he should have been retired by now, but he still enjoyed his work as a cabinet maker. Morris's eyesight wasn't quite what it had been in his younger days, and there were no streetlights in the lane, so when he saw something lying on the ramp outside his garage at the far end, he couldn't, at first, quite make out what it was. As he got closer, his first thought was that it was a shop window dummy lying on the ground. Then, he wondered whether it might be some unfortunate vagrant who was spending a cold night sleeping out in the open. Closer still, and he realised that he was looking at a naked woman, lying on her back on the frosty ground. Just for a fleeting moment, he thought that she might be asleep. Then he saw the livid marks on her neck. He noticed the film of frost over her open, unblinking eyes. He crouched and gently touched her shoulder. It was icy and hard. Catching his breath, Morris stumbled back towards his house and the telephone. This was how it began. The first police to arrive on the scene in response to Morris Goodman's garbled and almost incoherent telephone call were two traffic officers who happened to be in the area at the time. By 8 in the morning, the first detectives from City of Glasgow Police had arrived, Detective Sergeant Andrew Johnston and Detective Constable Norman MacDonald. They began their investigation and it was immediately clear that this was a murder. The woman was lying on her back and was naked other than for one shoe. She had been badly beaten on the face and head, and the livid bruises on her neck made it clear that she had been strangled. There was no sign of clothing or a handbag and no way of establishing the victim's identity. Dr James Imrie, the police pathologist, arrived not long after the first detectives. He noticed that rigor mortis was well established, confirming that the woman had been dead for several hours. A door-to-door -door inquiry by uniformed police was started within two hours of the discovery of the body, but it failed to produce any really useful information. One woman living in the area claimed that she had heard a woman cry out, leave me alone, in the early hours of that morning, and another thought that she might have seen someone fitting the victim's description getting into a car in the vicinity, but neither account could be definitively tied to the body in the lane. A journalist was found, who had been hosting a large party the night before, close to where the body was discovered. 
There had been a large number of guests and people had been arriving and leaving until the early hours, but no one had seen anything odd. It wasn't until an ambulance driver saw the body at the morgue at Victoria Hospital where it had been taken that there was any clue as to who the dead woman might be. Despite her facial injuries, the driver believed that he knew her and that she was a nurse. Police were still looking into this when, the following day, a man named John Wilson arrived at a police station in Glasgow. He told officers that he was worried because his daughter had gone dancing on Thursday evening and hadn't come home. He was taken to the morgue where he identified the body of the dead woman as his daughter, Patricia Docker. 25-year-old Patricia Docker loved dancing. That's how she had met her husband, Alex. But now, she and Alex were separated. Her husband was still a corporal in the RAF and serving at an airbase in Lincolnshire. Patricia had come back to Glasgow, her hometown, with her four-year-old son, also named Alex, and moved back in with her parents in their house at 29 Langside Place, near Queen's Park. Between looking after a lively toddler and working as an auxiliary nurse at Mearnscrook Hospital in Renfrewshire, there wasn't much time to dance. Patricia was delighted when it was agreed that her parents would look after young Alex on Thursday the 22nd of February 1968, while she went out dancing with friends from the hospital. She left her parents' house on Langside Place that Thursday evening and headed off to meet her friends at the Majestic Ballroom on Hope Street in the centre of Glasgow. She had her wavy hair cut into a fashionable bob and she was wearing a yellow knitted dress under a heavy duffel coat. Patricia arrived at the Majestic Ballroom, known locally as the Magic Stick, where she met with her friends. They listened to the resident band, Dr. Croc and his crackpots, who performed favourites including Yellow River and Butterfingers, and a version of a new hit by Marmalade, Oblady Oblada. But at some point later in the evening, Patricia seems to have decided to move on to the Barrel and Ballroom without her friends. The Majestic closed at 10.30 on a Thursday evening, so it's possible that Patricia may have simply wanted more dancing, as the Barrel and Ballroom didn't close until midnight. She may also have been attracted by the knowledge that Thursday and Saturday nights at the Barrowlands were palais nights, when, from 8pm to midnight, only over 25s were admitted. These were generally locally referred to as grab-a-granny nights. These over 25 nights at the Barrowland Ballroom had a certain reputation. These were where married men and women in search of a little uncomplicated companionship were said to congregate. There were standing jokes about attendees at these nights pausing as they entered to remove wedding rings. One retired Glasgow police officer memorably referred to the ballroom as Sodom and Gomorrah. A Glasgow resident who had spent time at the ballroom remembered, it was well known that if you wanted a bit more than a dance, then Thursday night was the evening to visit the Barrowland. I don't think many used their actual name on a Thursday night, folk were cautious. Anything that happened after dancing was finished was usually a one-off. Perhaps Patricia had always intended to go to the Barrel and Ballroom that night, but told her parents that she was going to the decidedly more respectable Majestic so that they wouldn't worry about her. Whatever her reasons, Patricia went on to the Barrel and Ballroom without any of her friends from the hospital. That evening, the dancing stopped at around 11.30pm, as it always did, and by midnight, the ballroom was empty. John Wilson told police that Patricia had been planning to go dancing at the Majestic Ballroom on the evening she died, and that was where they initially focused their inquiries. They found a witness who remembered dancing with Patricia at the Majestic, but several days later he told them he was mistaken and had got the night wrong. It wasn't until several days later that it was realised that Patricia had gone on to the Barrowland Ballroom, and by the time that police began questioning potential witnesses who had been there, people's memories had understandably faded. 
Recalling a stranger in a crowded dance hall wouldn't be easy in any circumstances, but several days after the event, it was virtually impossible. Some people remembered seeing a woman in a distinctive yellow dress, dancing with a number of partners. Two thought they remembered seeing the woman dancing with a red-haired man, but no one noticed when she left, or whether she was alone. The distance from the barrel and ballroom to the lane where Patricia's body was found is around three miles by the most direct route, about an hour a brisk walk. No witness could be found who recalled seeing the young woman walking on the most likely route, so it was thought possible that she had taken a taxi or had been given a lift by someone. Extensive police inquiries failed to identify any taxi driver who had taken a fare in the right area at the right time, and the working assumption was that Patricia had either accepted a lift from someone she had met at the ballroom who had driven her from the barrel in towards Langside Place, or that she had walked home, either on her own or accompanied by her killer, but that she had not been seen. It was a bitterly cold night, and there were few people on the streets in the early hours, so this was thought to be possible. The autopsy set the time of death at shortly after midnight, soon after which she was believed to have left the barrel and ballroom. Patricia had been menstruating at the time of her death, and a sanitary pad had been found close to her body. Police assumed that Patricia had met someone at the barrel and ballroom and had left with him, possibly accepting a lift in his vehicle or walking with him. He then took her back towards her parents' house at Langside Place, but had taken her into the lane off Carmichael Place where he had beaten her, removed her clothing, and then strangled her. A search by police divers of Whitecart Water, a small river around 100 metres from where Patricia's body was found, located her brown handbag and her bracelet, but her yellow dress, grey duffel coat and underclothes were never found. Her watch casing was found in a puddle close to her body. An autopsy was performed by the police pathologist, which concluded that Patricia had been severely beaten around the head, probably by being punched and kicked, and that her death had been caused by ligature strangulation. The ligature was not found, and it was surmised that this might have been a belt or a strap. The autopsy did not find any conclusive evidence of sexual assault. After Patricia's murder, it was assumed that the killer then went south towards Whitecart Water, where he dumped her handbag and bracelet. Whitecart Water is a small river which can't be seen or heard from the murder scene, leading detectives to wonder whether the killer was familiar with the area or whether he had stumbled upon it by chance. Police also wondered why the killer had dumped the handbag in the river. Was this because he knew that a leather bag was a potential source of fingerprints? After its immersion in the river, the handbag yielded no fingerprints and no prints were recovered from the crime scene. Likewise, Patricia's clothing. Did these have potentially incriminating bloodstains on them? And did the killer remove them to protect himself, or were they taken as some kind of macabre souvenir? Police initially considered Patricia's estranged husband Alex as a potential suspect, but he was quickly ruled out when it was discovered that at the time of the murder, he had been at RAF Digby in Lincolnshire, more than 250 miles away. Interviews with witnesses at the Barrel and Ballroom failed to produce a good description of any of the men Patricia might have danced with. With almost no other clues with which to work, and no viable suspects, the police inquiry scaled down within weeks. This murder inquiry was never formally closed, but without any clues as to the identity of Patricia's murderer, there was very little that could be done. Then, as now, police time and resources were limited, and were generally focused on cases that at least seemed to have the possibility of being solved. In all probability, the murder of Patricia Docker would have been largely forgotten were it not for the fact that, 18 months later, her killer seemed to strike again. You just listened to episode 1 of The Face of Bible John, hosted, recorded and produced by Louise McGregor, co-written by Louise McGregor and Steve McGregor, based on the book The Face of Bible John, The Search for a Scottish Serial Killer by Steve McGregor. Thank you for listening.